You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony. I've gotten a lot of letters over the last week, as you can probably imagine, from people curious about piss play and the president-elect of the United States, Donald Trump, who will later this week become the president of the United States, Donald Trump. What are you doing on Inauguration Day? I am going to be getting high, listening to musicals, and sucking a dick. Those are my plans on Inauguration Day. I don't know about yours, but I'm going to have a media blackout. I almost blacked out this week just reading the thing that everybody read, the dossier prepared by a British spy looking into Donald Trump's and the Trump campaign's connections to Russians, Russian intelligence, whether they've been compromised, whether they were colluding with Russian intelligence agencies to throw the election here in the United States. But of course, all anybody wants to talk about is the one thing in that dossier that suggests that perhaps the Russian intelligence agencies have a videotape of Donald Trump in a hotel suite that had been previously occupied by Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, where he paid some prostitutes to urinate all over the bed. And so pee hookers, as they said on Wonkat, pee hookers. Let's talk about the pee hookers. So I've been getting a lot of questions, someone in my position would, about Donald Trump and whether he has a piss fetish. Donald Trump at his first press conference as president-elect denied that this was even possible, that he would ever do something like this. If you had told me two years ago that the president-elect of the United States in 2016 would have to, at a press conference shortly before their inauguration, deny being into piss play, I would not have believed you. But here we are. Play the tape. Does anyone really believe that story? I'm also very much of a germaphobe, by the way. (laughs) Believe me. One of the people who wrote to me about the president-elect and piss play said, in this rare case, is Donald Trump being truthful about his germaphobia? Should we conclude that this would make him less likely, his germaphobia would make him less likely to be interested in golden showers and water sports? Well... Not necessarily. Urine, as everyone knows, is sterile, and that shouldn't be a problem then for a germaphobe. No germs. Urine, sterile. Nancy, Nancy, what the fuck's going on? Nancy. Hi, this is Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. Yes, that's my theme music. With this message, I mean, I say it every day, but urine is not sterile. Wait, what? Yes. Okay, so I, as soon as I read... The dossier said to myself, well, that shouldn't be a problem even for the germaphobe because urine's sterile. And I was corrected. Urine's not sterile, some guy who called me a cuck on Twitter said. (laughs) How could I not know this? I've been writing about people splashing around in urine, even drinking urine for 25 years. How could I not know that it's not sterile? That's the answer. You've been doing it for 25 years. And I think from what I understand, and this is an article in Smithsonian and other popular publications, but it seems like the very good research on this was done in the year 2014 a team of scientists from Loyola University as a debunker. So this is important for a couple of reasons. For years, we thought it was sterile. It doesn't seem to be that terribly horrible, although, you know, there are chances that some of the mic 
microbes, especially if they contact with your dirty, dirty skin, can be bad for you. But remember, in this report, Trump was in that hotel in 2013. So he, ah. he could have thought that urine was sterile at the time. But it is incorrect of me now to, to suggest that urine is sterile. I need to revise all these old columns where I told people to just go ahead and drink. Yeah, drink up, lift a, lift a glass, bottoms up. Oh, wait, that has another connotation to it, doesn't it? Well, I really appreciate you for jumping in and correcting me, Mike. That was really good of you. Uh, but I want to wrap it up just style. So, Mike, urine is sterile. Is this bullshit? It is bullshit. It might not be the worst uh, fluid to come out of your body. And I shouldn't say worst. We don't judge. But the most <laughs> filled with microbes. We don't want to create a hierarchy of bodily fluids right. here. But since sterility is a binary, it is not on the sterile side of that binary. Urine is not sterile. Live and learn. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I have been wrong, low these many years, and you have corrected me, and I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you, Mike. I stand corrected. Urine, not sterile. But, and sterile, as Mike says, is a binary. Something is sterile or it's not sterile. Now we know, after all these years, that urine is indeed not sterile, but... Some things are even less not sterile than urine. Urine is pretty sterile, sterile enough for all practical purposes. People have more germs and bacteria in their mouths than they do in their piss. I've been Googling around and doing some reading myself just now. So urine, not sterile, but sterile-ish. Perhaps that might pass muster with a germaphobe. Also, arousal trumps disgust. When you think about it, sex is gross. We do a lot of icky things during sex. And how do people do that? How do people do those icky things? You think about kissing the taint of the person sitting next to you on the bus in the morning and you'd be just grossed out by, by the thought. But then later that day, maybe that evening, you're in bed with someone that you like and kissing their taint is the most delightful thought. Sex researchers in the Netherlands did a study looking into this and they found that arousal helps people get over the ick factor of sex, that people, when they're aroused, will do things that they wouldn't do when they're not aroused. So urine, not sterile, but sterile-ish. Not necessarily a mood killer for a germaphobe, provided he's in the right mood, provided he is aroused. And of course, that stands to reason. Again, people do all sorts of things in aroused states that would disgust them if they weren't turned on, from swallowing someone else's spit to eating someone else's ass to wallowing in someone else's piss. And saying someone like our president-elect couldn't possibly be into piss because that particular kink doesn't square with a well-known character trait and or aspect of his public persona is like saying a hard-driving male CEO would never pay a dominatrix to tie him up, humiliate him, and shove two dozen needles through the head of his cock because he's such a powerful guy. Or saying a feminist woman would never want to have her ass slapped or her hair pulled by a male sex partner. Or saying that an out-and-proud gay man would never want to be called a faggot by the dude fucking his ass. While most powerful CEOs aren't BDSM subs and most feminists aren't into having their asses slapped and their hair pulled and most out and proud gay men aren't into being called faggots when they're bottoming, enough of all three are for each to be something of a cliché. Sexual play allows us to transgress. It allows us to transgress against social and sexual norms, against arbitrary and sometimes not so arbitrary taboos, and most compellingly for many of us, it allows us to transgress against our public personas, the person we want others to perceive us as. Being that person, that can be hard work. It can take sustained effort. And the thought of being the opposite, the groveling sub instead of the CEO, the dirty slut, not the righteous feminist, the sniveling faggot, not the proud gay man, that's irresistibly arousing for some. 
Best practices, people, transgress safely with other consenting adults who enjoy your sexual transgressions just as much as you do. So the fact that someone is a germaphobe, Donald Trump trotting out his famous germaphobia, that does not prove that he couldn't possibly be into piss or distinctly unsterile or much less sterile kinks like raunch or, and I'm really sorry about this mental image, scat for that matter. Someone else wrote in and reminded me, reminded us, wanted to remind everyone that Donald Trump reacted with disgust when Hillary Clinton famously during one of the debates had to take a bathroom break. And he thought that was just so disgusting that Hillary Clinton was a human being who might have to go to the bathroom. And this letter writer suggested that that was evidence that perhaps Donald Trump did not have a piss fetish because he was so grossed out by the idea of Hillary Clinton taking a leak. Actually, that doesn't prove it either because nothing can disgust someone who's into piss or spit or ass more than contemplating these spit ass or piss of someone they find repulsive. Donald Trump, if he likes piss, likes the piss of people that he likes, doesn't like the piss of someone that he doesn't like and may find the piss of someone he doesn't like particularly revolting as a concept. A guy who really likes eating his boyfriend's ass is going to recoil at the thought of someone rimming, say, Bill O'Reilly's ass. I'm very sorry for that mental image as well. Coming up on today's show, we've got Angel Padilla from the Indivisible team, and we've got Kurt Eichenwald from Newsweek, and of course, tons of your questions and lots to distract you from the terrible calamity about to be visited upon our country on Friday, but a little bit on that too, all on today's show. Hi, Mr. Savage. My name's Marco. I'm a longtime listener since my sophomore year of high school, I believe. Um, But now I'm a 20-year-old, pretty much closeted college student. Recently, my family's dog of nine and a half years passed away. So she was like my best friend. And I feel really guilty because around three years ago, another family member of mine died. And I never described my kind of penny here. And I told her, you're going to see me be open about my sexuality to my family and to my mom especially. Um, unfortunately that never happened. I plan on coming out on my last year of community college. So because since I go to community college right now, I get to stay at home and I go with my mom, my siblings, and I know my siblings would be cool with it, but I honestly have no idea how my mom would react to it. And so now like, I want to tell my mom about me being gay before June of 2017, because that is her birthday. That was when she would have turned 10. And I have no idea how she's going to react to it. So I want to know, like, what do you think I should do? Should I wait a little longer? Or should I just come out, like, before June, like in March or April of next year? I have no idea. I just, uh, I honestly just want to get it done because I feel so guilty for not breaking my promise to my poor little doggy. First, I want to say that I'm so sorry for the loss of your beloved pet. Uh, I'm right there with you. My cat died when I was away at college. Morris, I named him. Of course, all kids my age were naming their cats Morris way back then. Uh, and I got him when I was three or four years old. And when I was in college, he died many, many years later. And I was so grief-stricken, I had to go home. I called my mother and told her to go back to the vet after she called to tell me that they'd had to have him put to sleep and get the body out of the dumpster, wherever the 
vet put it so that I could bury him in our yard, which is what I did when I rushed home. So I understand and can empathize with your grief at the loss of your beloved pet. But let's set that aside and talk about when and how and whether you should come out to your mom. Your dog, when you came out to her, didn't understand what the fuck you were saying. When you said, I promise I'm going to come out to mom before you die or before I can't even remember when the promise was pegged exactly, your dog heard and thought, food, 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 food. Sometime I'm going to get food out of him. He's going to give me some food, right? And your dog loved you. And there's a real bond there and, and a bond of affection. But affection and dependence really on the part of the dog. And it's a different kind of relationship. So your dog is not up in heaven tapping its paw, wondering why you have not yet come through on this promise that you made her because your dog did not fucking understand a word you goddamn said. Your dog understood attention and affection and food and loved you for all those things. But your dog is not crushed or disappointed right now that you are not yet out to mom. You fulfilled every promise that a human being can make to a pet. You loved him. You loved her. You fed her. You paid attention to her. You cared for her. Every promise that you could come through on, you came through on. Now let yourself go. Set aside the promise you made to your dog. That is not a real fucking timeline when it comes to coming out to your mom. You're 20 years old. You are financially and residentially dependent on your mother right now. And you say that you can't anticipate how she might react to your coming out, which leads me to believe that you have some grounds to fear a negative reaction. You have some grounds to fear being told to move out of your house. You have some grounds to fear being cut off financially, some grounds to fear losing your family's support while you get your education. Don't take that risk. You're 20. You're in community college. You have a year or two to go. You can wait a year or two. Your dog, if I'm wrong about dog heaven and dogs in heaven can understand English and remember every promise that was ever made to them on earth, if I'm wrong about that, your dog up there in dog heaven will understand your predicament and will not resent you for delaying coming out to your mother. Of course, what you're doing with your dog, if I may, is you're projecting onto your dog your desire because you want to be out. But you have to weigh, and anyone in your situation has to weigh, coming out right now versus the risks of being retaliated against by your parent. 40% of homeless teenagers are LGBT kids who came out or were outed to their families and got thrown out. It is a very real risk. That kind of horrible, unloving retaliation is a real risk. So I would urge you to err on the side of waiting a little bit longer, waiting until you're 21 years old, and in the meantime, lining up some support. If you indeed cannot wait until you are done with community college or done with college to come out to your family and be fully yourself and fully honest, start lining up support. If you should come out a year from now and your mother does have a negative reaction and she does retaliate against you, she does throw you out of the house, line up support now. Talk to friends about your fears. Ask people before you come out to your mother If the worst should happen, do you have a couch to crash on at their house for a while? Will they help you? Will they support you emotionally? And if need be, will they put you up? Line up that kind of support before you come out to your mother if you think there's a risk. And again, I am very sorry for the loss of your pet. But your pet, wherever she is now, either understands or continues not to understand. It's one or the other. 
Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling for a friend who doesn't happen to listen to the podcast, but she comes to me with relationship advice, and I'm sort of stumped. So the situation is she's been with her boyfriend for two years now, and he has done this thing every winter. This will be the second time this winter where he cannot have sex with her. He loses all his libido. He doesn't have any desire to masturbate, to touch her, to have any sexual contact with her. And it's not like this at all during the rest of the year. And it happened last year, and we thought maybe it was just a phase. And once spring had come, he's totally back in it, amazing sex all the time, she said. And then we thought it was good. So then, but um, come this last few weeks, it's happening again. And she says, actually, that they haven't had sex since October. And he's a really great guy. I met him. He's really sweet. And they, they go well together. But, I, I mean, I could not just not have sex for the entire winter every year of my life. And she's just really stuck because she doesn't know if she wants to stay with him because he's great. And they do have a great relationship other than this one thing. But, I mean, I say leave because I wouldn't be able to deal with this <laughs> forever. Um, but she's really torn about it because she loves him, and I, I don't blame her. So if you've had any advice about, like, what to do with seasonal, I guess, not depression, but uh, anti-sexuality during these winter months, that would be great to hear what I should tell her because, you know, I just, I don't know. Well, your friend who doesn't listen to the Savage Lovecast, which you can fix, you can get her to listen to the Savage Lovecast. Everybody should get everybody they know to listen to the Savage Lovecast. If she had called me, what I would ask her is, is this a price of admission that you're willing to pay? Have a conversation with the boyfriend. Is this just an established fact about his life and there is no altering this? He has some sort of seasonal affective or seasonal asexuality disorder. He's sad every year in the winter and libido-less. And there isn't a trauma at the bottom of this. There's nothing that he can do about it. And it's nothing that he's particularly interested in working on. It's just the way it is. I would then ask your friend, is this price admission you're willing to pay? Are you willing to have months every year, at least two months, maybe three months, where you masturbate a lot, where there's still intimacy, there's still connection, but there isn't PIV, there isn't PIM, there isn't PIA, there isn't pegging his ass either. There's just a lot of hopefully still, in the absence of his libido, affection. If that's the case, and that is a price of mission to be in this relationship that your friend is willing to pay, then you need to take a seat, call her, and let her pay that price of mission. If, however, she's miserable, and you're coming to me to ask this question because she has now for the second year in a row come to you to ask about this situation and is distraught and upset and frustrated, then it may not be a price of admission that she is willing to pay. And if it's not a price of admission that she is willing to pay, she needs to end this relationship. Hey, I am a young 24-year-old female. I recently was in living in a different country, in Spain, and there I got a civil union with a wonderful guy who I love a lot and I still love. About seven months ago, I left the country to move back to my home and decided not to go back. Why? Just because, I don't know, I think I wasn't ready for that commitment that we were obviously heading into, that we already had. I wanted to 
I guess, I don't know, do a little more exploring. And when I got back, I instantly became sexually active with five guys in this month period since coming back. And it's not like I feel connected to any of them, but I am just really, I guess, I don't know, feeling like a very sexual person. And now, in the next month, I am going back to the country, back to Spain, to see if I can reevaluate my relationship with the, my significant other, who I have the civil union with, see if we can start back again. And I don't know how to explain to him, or if I should explain to him, like, if I was in sexual relationships with other guys and I didn't feel, like, connected with them, I don't know if I should tell him this, or should this, should I take this meeting as a, like, a new time to start everything over? I don't know. We know what you were doing. You know what you were doing over the last seven months after you came home from Spain. You were sitting on all the dicks. Well, just five of the dicks, but let's just, for sake of argument, call it all the dicks. You're sitting on all the dicks. We don't know, and you don't know what he was doing. I can't imagine with his civil union partner having decamped for the United States uh, and having seven months ago decided she may or may not be returning anytime soon, that he's been chased this entire time, unless you locked him in a pretty severe cock cage right before you left. I can't imagine that he's been not having his dick sat upon, perhaps by as many people as you have sat upon. So go back and keep your mouth shut and just run with the assumption that he was sexually active in your absence, as he should assume that you were sexually active in his absence. You don't mention any conversations you had with him. You didn't leave a callback number, so I can't call you back. You didn't mention any conversations you had with him about whether you were broken up, whether you were taking a break, whether you had a future or didn't have a future. And I'm just going to assume that as soon as you went home and you said, I don't know if I'm coming back, I'm going back to school, I have no return ticket, and the months ticked by, that he wasn't sitting by the window with one little candle looking up the street waiting for you to appear on the cobblestones in Madrid or wherever the fuck, that he was getting on with his life just like you were getting on all the text with your life. So run with that assumption. Go back, see him. See if you're both still the same people. See if you want to be together. And if you establish after those first meetings that you indeed would like to, both of you would like to pick things back up where you left them off, at some point you may or may not have a conversation about what exactly filled all those months while you were apart. And that may be a conversation that you have, but again, and I want to emphasize this, it may be a conversation that you never have. Some people just don't want to know. Some people take a DADT approach, that's don't ask, don't tell, to a separation, to a trial separation, to a long-distance relationship of six months or a year or more. Just whatever happened, happened, and it's in the past, and we don't need to terrorize each other with mental images or stoke insecurities that right now lay dormant but could be brought to life with TMI. So assess where you're at when you know where you're at. And at some point down the road, you will have a conversation about all the dicks you sat on in his absence. And maybe he'll tell you about all the pussy he dove into in yours or maybe the fuck not. Maybe this will just be something private about your life, something that was just for you, a zone of erotic autonomy. Hey, Dan, uh, single, 32 here in Seattle, wondering 
if I should have sex with the guy that I met and really like, and it's going really well, but he's still legally married and officially separated. I'm having a little bit of a hard time. He's not lying about being married or anything. We have mutual friends, but I was just kind of unsettled by uh, him not being legally divorced. Go ahead and fuck the guy. You say that you know for sure through mutual friends that he is legally married, and hopefully through these same mutual friends, you know that he is actually separated and actually the divorce is in the offing. Some people say that they're separated. Some people say that they're getting a divorce. Some men do, some women do, and they are lying to the person that they're fucking or the person they would like to fuck. They're telling that person what they think that person needs to hear before dropping their trousers or lifting their skirts or whatever the fuck they happen to be wearing at the time. If you know that this is not the case here, if you know that he is indeed separated from his wife and that they are divorcing, hopefully it's amicable, and if not amicable, hopefully it's civil and constructive, go ahead and fuck the guy. You knew that's what I was going to say. I assume you listened to the podcast. You must have listened to the podcast. You can't call the podcast if you don't listen to the podcast. And you've heard me sign off on sleeping with people who are actively cheating on their partners because there are circumstances in which I think people have grounds to cheat. There are circumstances under which I think cheating is the least worst option. There are even some circumstances where cheating is the most loving and responsible and loyal and honorable thing to do. There's some outraged callback bait for you. So definitely this passes. This passes muster. And you knew it would pass muster with me, which is why you called me, because you wanted permission to go fuck the shit out of this still technically legally married guy. And you got it, of course, with the caveat that you know for sure through these mutual friends that he is indeed separated and that they are headed to divorce. Hey, Dan. I love your show. Uh, So I had this thing that happened last night where I... (laughs) Woke up to being smacked in the back by the guy I recently started seeing. According to him, it was out of fear and a dream where I turned into a demon, which is what all girls want to hear. After questioning him about it, he seemed concerned and sorry. His story was generally plausible with a few holes. So, like, I don't know. Like, there was this thing about his girlfriend that he maybe did it to in the past, but it wasn't clear. For backstory, we met a couple weeks ago on a kink app, and I've been really nuts about him despite our 27-year age gap. Seeing as we met on a kink site, how do I know he's not expressing an undisclosed, like, sadist fantasy? How should I proceed if I genuinely want to keep seeing this mostly lovely and kind man? Sexomnia is a real thing, and I suppose some people slapping on the ass could be a form of sexomnia. I am concerned, however, about the story, the generally plausible account that he offered you with the holes in it. In this circumstance, irrespective of meeting on a kink site, irrespective of whatever fetishes you two have already talked about or cop to in your initial meetings, I'm really concerned that somebody assaulted you in the middle of the night in your sleep, consciously or unconsciously, and they weren't able to discuss this with you in a completely plausible way. You should be very concerned. That is a May Day red flag. That is a tank rolling through Red Square waving a red flag, red flag. You can, if you wish, of course, you can do whatever the fuck you want. If you wish, you can give him another chance. You can continue to hang out with him. I would watch the fuck out for 
this or anything like this happening again. Watch the fuck out for another explanation for another unexplained moment of physical discomfort being inflicted upon you in a non-consensual fashion where the explanation he offers you isn't plausible, isn't entirely 100% plausible. It shouldn't happen again at all, ever, period. But I imagine that if this is indeed a problem, if this is the red flag that I heard it as, and I'm sure many listeners heard it as, that this might happen again. This was likely to happen again. And if there is another bullshit explanation, chock full of holes, you need to end it. I would, in your shoes, end it now because of the holes. And I would tell him, I'm ending this now because I'm not satisfied with the explanation you offered me for assaulting me in the middle of the night in that completely batshit way. So I want a full explanation that is completely plausible and whole free, a seamless fucking garment of an explanation or I'm out. I doubt you'll get one because something's up here. And the only question that I have for you is how long are you going to stick around before you figure out exactly what it is that's up? And my only question for you is, is it worth it to stick around long enough to figure out exactly what is up with him if it means enduring another incident or more incidents like this one. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old single, straight female living in Washington State. I'm calling today for advice when it comes to my parents, my mom in particular. My parents have been married for 35 years. It hasn't always been the easiest for them, but they do find a way to make it work. My mom confides in my sister and me a lot for of the time when it comes to my parents' sex life. I feel I should not know these intimate details about my parents, but neither one of my parents have any real friends to talk to, so I feel like I need to be my mom's sounding board. My dad is a very private person and rarely shares his feelings with his brothers, never with us kids, and keeps things from my mom a lot of the time. My mom doesn't feel comfortable talking with other people or her sisters about her sex life, so she relies on her daughters to bed. My mom has had health issues most of her life, and because of this, sex is very painful for her. She says it's her wifely duty to be intimate with my dad, but hurts for several hours after intercourse. My mom still wants to be intimate with my dad to feel wanted, loved, and important, and to make him feel good. She has done things out of her comfort zone for my dad's pleasure the last few years to try and keep him interested in her. Today, she texted me to say that she caught him looking at porn. It's not the first time that this has happened, and it hurts her feeling. She says she feels like he is cheating when he would rather look at porn than have sex with her when she is willing and able to do so. I'm not sure if she's hurt because he won't approach her or if it's some kind of kink she is not willing to do for him. She's talked to him several times, expressing her feelings and asking if there's anything she can do to please him more, including going as far as plastic surgery. He told her that he likes her body just the way she is, but nothing has really changed on his part. My dad will not talk to me about this, nor does my mom want him to know that she talks to us about their sex life. I'm really stuck here. I don't know what, what advice to give my mom. She has pretty low self-esteem, and I try to be her support system to build her up, but my support is not what she needs right now. My dad has refused to go to couples counseling in the past and shuts down and stops talking to us when he gets mad or threatened. Any advice from my sister and me to support my mom or approach my dad is greatly appreciated. So mom doesn't feel comfortable talking with other people about her sex life with your dad, so she talks to you 
even though that makes you feel uncomfortable. You need to call mom on that. Mom should go to counseling. Even if dad doesn't want to go, mom should go see a counselor, maybe a couple's counselor. She can go alone. And then if dad gets sucked into counseling because mom's going good, but mom needs somebody to talk about with this who isn't you and it isn't your sister. Maybe there's a senior sex subreddit. Maybe somebody will call in letting us know that there's a senior sex subreddit where people your mom's age find community. Maybe there's some other website where people your mother's age can chat anonymously with other people roughly your mother's age, and she can make a virtual friend or two, people she can talk about with her sex life without having to look them in the eye. But you have to establish some boundaries with your mom and tell her that you are not comfortable being her confidant or not comfortable being her only confidant. So long, however, as you are your mother's confidant, I think you should go to mom and say, all men look at porn. Dad looking at porn does not mean dad is not attracted to you. If looking at porn meant that a guy wasn't attracted to the person that he's with, then no guy anywhere is attracted to the person that they're with anywhere because all guys everywhere look at porn and most women do too. Although sometimes we don't recognize that right away when it comes to women looking at porn because the porn many women look at doesn't resemble the porn that leaps to mind when someone throws the word porn out there. Fifty Shades of Grey, porn, slash fiction, porn, romance novels, perhaps for women of your mother's age, that generation definitely served a pornographic function. But all men look at porn and it doesn't have the meaning your mother is ascribing to it. And you should say that to your mother. And then when she wrings her hands and has a freak out that dad was looking at porn again, you just say, remember what I told you last time? We don't have to have this conversation again if you remember what I told you last time. And you do. As for intercourse and the pain, if your mother has a medical issue around vulvar or vaginal pain, a good place to start to find information and find your way in is Dr. Lori Brodo, frequent Savage Lovecast guest and expert in this area and other areas. Go to her website, lauriebroto.com, and dink around and you will find information that may help your mother. You can also, in one big diarrhea-style conversation where you get a lot of things off your chest and tell your mother you're never going to talk with her about this in this way ever again because it makes you uncomfortable, you can tell her that intercourse isn't her only option with dad. That if intercourse is painful, if PIV is painful, there are other forms of intimacy that she and dad can share that won't wind up leaving her in pain for hours. I don't know what kind of a guy your dad is. I don't know if your dad is a monster, but if he's not a monster, the fact that intercourse, PIV, is painful for your mother and leaves her feeling wrecked for hours afterwards would function as kind of a disincentive, a decent and loving guy wouldn't want to have PIV under those sorts of circumstances very often because the guilt would be crushing. Maybe your dad is resorting to pornography every once in a while to give your mom and her vag, your mom's vag, here we are talking about your mom's vag, getting more uncomfortable, to give your mom's vag a break. So maybe the pornography use isn't just assholery. It could be a form of consideration that he is seeking some outlets and some release without having to tax your mother. But there are alternate forms of intercourse, of pleasure that your mother and your dad can enjoy, including mutual masturbation, which is not to be underestimated, including frottage, which is no penis in the vag, but penis between the legs and up the crack without going into the ass, including oral sex, 
which could be more pleasurable and going in both directions. So encourage your mom to expand the menu. And then every time she and dad are intimate, it doesn't have to be painful for her. And if every once in a while she wants to take one for the team because vaginal intercourse, despite the costs for your mother in pain is something that makes your mother feel very connected to your dad. And it's a place she wants to go every once in a while. She wants to grin and bear it and deal with the aftermath because for her PIV is emotionally significant and important. She should go there, but mix it up. You can encourage your mother to mix it up. And again, encourage your mother to make some friends. Clearly your mother is, has some inhibitions about looking somebody in the eye, a peer, a sibling, a friend that she doesn't have, but she needs to make and opening up about her sex life. That's what the internet was invented for mom on the internet. You can open up with often. If you search them out, caring, compassionate, helpful, constructive individuals about your intimacy problems, about your pain and get good information, get support, get people sharing with you their approaches how they worked around or worked with or even solved these very problems that your mother's enduring around pain during sex right now. So do all of those things. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a tech-savvy at-risk youth in Chicago, and uh, I've got two questions, one sexual, one political. First off, I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I'm pretty sure from past reviews that my cum tastes terrible after I've had insulin, which is, you know, always as a type 1 diabetic. So you know of any doctors who could recommend me some stuff without me having to look them in the face, that'd be wonderful. Second, uh, in light of the recent political unpleasantness, I was wondering if you could provide some starter kit type suggestions to left-leaning political action. There's a lot of people who are like, yeah, run for school board, but I don't have children and I don't know how to run for a thing or if I should. So I figured you'd be a good place to go to because you're a leftist and you're not a politico. So maybe you could have some useful information. Joining me by phone to help field this question, Angel Padilla, a former congressional staffer from the Indivisible team, one of the co-authors of Indivisible, which I'm not going to attempt to describe here. I'm going to ask Angel to describe it. Hey, Angel, how are you? Good, how are you? So tell the folks out there who have not yet heard what Indivisible is. So Indivisible is basically it's a guide to how to make your member of Congress listen to you and hopefully using this guide, stop the racist, corrupt Trump agenda that we're already dealing with. So best practices to deal with your member of Congress. And it came out shortly after the election and it really landed with a, with a boom, just a thunderclap. And, and it's elicited a tremendous response. And there are now indivisible chapters that have sprung up all over the country. And ironically, the recommendations here on how to combat the Trump agenda, it's all grounded in modeling the left's response on the Tea Party's response to the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Yeah. So I think what we sort of realize is that, you know, we are in a better position now than Republicans and the Tea Party were in 2009. So if they were able to stop the, the Obama agenda, then we should be able to stop the Trump agenda. We're in a better position, a stronger position, and we can win. And better position, you know, evidence of that, Trump's uh, approval rating right now, like 36, 37 percent. Obama came in with an approval rating in the high 60s, and yet the Tea Party got out there and really ground the Obama agenda to a halt in a couple of years. And you guys are arguing an indivisible and encourage everyone to Google it, to get online, to read it, arguing that leftists have to model their response on the Tea Party response, which was all about getting in the faces of individual members of Congress and individual senators in your home states. 
Can you run us through how you do that? Run us through some of the recommendations from Indivisible. We're really answering this, the second half of this guy's question first, the half about a starter kit for left-leaning political action. And I just want you to do the brief download, the Reader's Digest version for listeners, and then you will help me tackle the first part of this question. Yeah, so it's uh, basically two two big uh, strategies. The first one is be local, act local, right? Don't worry about what's happening in D.C. Don't worry about what a reconciliation vote is. Don't worry about what a motion to recommit is. Really go to your member's office. Make them listen to you, right? Go to the district office. Everyone has a district office or a regional office, and that's what matters. Go down to an event that they're at and make sure that they listen to you. Um, and the second thing is, you know, there are a lot of reasons to oppose this Trump agenda. So we all have to stick together and say no. Just say no to everything. And we're already seeing this work, right? The last week, two weeks, we've seen Republicans try to pass something. And because of the overwhelming opposition, um, they've had to stop or they've had to adjust their plan. So one of the things that is, is a problem for you know the lefties who listen to my show is a lot of them are going to be living in big cities that are represented by liberals and, and progressives. You know, you look at cities and they voted overwhelmingly for Clinton. Cities aren't sending conservative Republicans to Congress, and you know most of the people representing most of my listeners are already going to be hopefully on the right side of this issue. So if you live in a Seattle or a Chicago or a New York or a Los Angeles or a Madison, are you off the hook? Do you not need to get in the face of your Congress members and senators? No, and that's, that's, that's the key, right? You're not off the hook and neither is your, your member of Congress. Great that they're good on your issues, right? If you have a nice progressive Democrat that's re- representing you, don't let them sit on the sidelines, right? You have to make sure that they continue fighting for your issues. Um, and there's a tendency you know, like there might be, you might have like a really good Democrat, but they might just feel like, oh, you know what? Republicans are just going to screw this up. So I'm going to sit on the sidelines. I'm not going to, you know, put in the extra effort. Well, they need to be fighting for you. And so you need to be uh, in their face, making sure that they don't cave on your issues. And making sure that they, again, fight, that just being in opposition isn't good enough. They need to be in vocal opposition. They need to be using every parliamentary maneuver they can to block the Trump agenda. Yeah. And so just to give you like two quick examples, some of, uh, you know, I'm from California, excuse me, I'm from California originally. And so Diane Feinstein is a senator from, from California, but so so many times I hear, you know, Diane Feinstein is like thinking about negotiating on some of these issues or she's not as good as she, she should be. Well, if she's from California, one of the bluest states in the country, there's no reason why, why your senators should be uh, negotiating away your, your rights. So you're going to get in Diane Feinstein's face yourself. <laughs> you should get into whoever your member is, get in, into their face. Now, what about a friend of mine was just asking when I told him I would be talking to one of the guys from the Indivisible team. What about, you know, you, you guys recommend don't call somebody else's representative, you know, don't call some Congress member who isn't your representative because they don't care what you have to think. They don't represent you. Those calls, those letters go right in the bin. What about calling somebody and lying to them and saying that you're a constituent when you're not? Um, you know, what's, what's so interesting is when I worked on the Hill, you could always, you always had a sense that someone was actually from the district. You know, you learn little things, right? Like if you want, if you, uh, you know, the, the zip code and the area code. So if, if you get a call and it's the right area code, you automatically think, oh, this is actually a constituent, mm-hmm. you know, and you're also, you're also taught from the beginning to be sort of cautious about what you say, because you might be, someone might be trying to fool you. Um, right. That's why we think it's so important to actually go down to the district office where there's no, there's no doubt there, right? If you're down in the district office, they know you live there, you know, that they know that you're the constituent. 
And also to go to town hall meetings that a lot of members of Congress and senators have town hall meetings back in their home states, back in their home districts. And we all saw those videos in 2009, 2010 of Tea Party activists crowding into those meetings and shouting down their members of Congress and getting in their faces. And now we on the left, we need to borrow that tactic. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so there's, you know, there's all over the press today, they're talking, they're referencing this big uh, Speaker Ryan town hall with CNN. And, you know, that's great if, if Speaker Ryan is your representative, but really every member of Congress thinking about voting to repeal the ACA or thinking about voting in favor to confirm just sessions, they should be having town halls to explain to their constituents why they're doing that, right? And if they do have any public event, then you need to go out there and you need to ask them questions. You know, why are they voting? to, you know, take away people's health care? Why are they voting to, you know, end women's health rights? You know, those are the kinds of things you need to do. People might not feel comfortable doing that all on their own, and they don't have to do it on their own. That's one of the things that Indivisible uh, has helped to create all across the country are, are these chapters. People are meeting up. People are, you know, making new left-leaning, politically active friends so that they don't have to show up at a town hall meeting by themselves, so that they can go with a, a posse. And people are having letter-writing parties and phone-calling parties, and there's going to be a, there's a social aspect to this as well, and, and building a community of leftists and progressive. We always talk on the left how we don't have anything like uh, the churches on the right, all these conservative evangelical churches all over the country that are, sorry, not politically neutral, are in the hip pocket of the Republican Party and the GOP, and activate and motivate voters and screamers and yellers. And we don't have that on the left. And one of the things that Indivisible is helping to create is that infrastructure on the left. Can you tell us about these chapters, how people are starting them, why people are starting them, and how people can get involved in starting one? Yeah. And what, you know, what was really great to see is that, you know, we didn't start any of this. There were already groups that were, were forming. They were getting together, you know, friends and neighbors uh, all over the country, just getting together to talk about what they could do to stop what they knew was coming, right? What they knew was coming under Trump. Um, but we, you know, now that we, you're seeing, we're seeing all these groups all over the country, we thought it would be very useful to have a, a directory. So we've created a directory on our website, right? Indivisibleguide.com where um, if you are interested in finding your own group, you can go onto our website. You can search by zip code or address uh, to find if there's uh, a group near you. And if there isn't, you can start one. You can register, um, and then maybe you know you can grow out uh, your own little group. All right, let's talk about the caller's first question. He has type one diabetes and has come. He has heard tastes terrible. What do you recommend that he do about that? What do I think you should do? Um, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I've heard pineapple juice. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's the uh, old wives' tale. Drink a lot of pineapple juice, and your your cum will taste good. You actually have to pour the pineapple juice over your dick while someone is sucking it for it to have any impact on the taste <laughs> of your semen. Drink a lot of water. Eat a lot of fresh vegetables. Don't subsist on a diet of fast food, cigarettes, and diet coke. And all of your bodily fluids will taste better. But you know if your medicines are having a terrible impact on your the taste of your semen, which can happen, there's not a lot you can do about that except offer the person a mint after, unfortunately. There are no meds okay. to counteract that. That's just not something that the uh, Centers for Disease Control is going to prioritize around treatment options, pills to make your cum taste better, I'm sorry to say. Angel, you got anything to add to that? Any tips of your own? Uh, no, just come to our website and you can find more information. And not about the, not about the, making your cum taste better. More information about fighting the Trump agenda. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know, it, just one last thing I'd want to say is we've gotten so many volunteers that have wanted to help, and 
it's really grateful to all of them, but really just go to our website, try to get more information and, and start your own group. And the website again is? Indivisibleguide.com. Indivisibleguide.com. If you have not read this pamphlet yet, what do you call it? A pamphlet? A, a, a dossier? A, what do you guys call it in-house? It's just, it's just a guide, but what's great is that all these other groups have created their own little like pamphlets and like you know like reduced versions of it or like expanded on it. It's great. So go read it if you have not yet read it. It is a really important document. We're going to look back on what you guys did, what the guys, uh, all of you from the Indivisible team did in creating it. And we're going to mark that as one of the things that helped stem the tide, turn the tide uh, in battling the Trump agenda. Angel Padilla, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. So I'm a gay 33-year-old. I live in Israel. And I have a question for you. I am definitely not interested in having a penis in my ass. I love the feeling of my penis inside of a guy, the feeling that my penis feels when I have an, or when I have an orgasm inside of someone. I love licking asses. I just am all about being the top. I just love, love, love to fuck. But... I also love the concept of a bigger, muscly guy forcing me to fuck him and like using his big hands and pushing down on my chest and forcing my dick inside of him and wrapping his hands around me and getting himself fucked so that I can't move and his big body on top of mine. So I guess what I'm really looking for is a dom-sub sexual relationship, but I still want to be the top. Is this a real thing? Are there bottoms who are big and muscly and hot and want to be dominating and force themselves onto a guy and make him fuck them? Is this something that exists, or is this just a fantasy that I'm never going to see? It exists. It is out there in the world. People use the expression power bottoms, often to mean just somebody who can get the shit fucked out of them. They just have an amazing, never-ending ass. They can go and go and go and go, and they can just chew up dicks with their butts. But it also means sometimes there are dominant bottoms. There are guys who like to get fucked but be in charge and physically dominate the person who is fucking them. They are out there too, and the only thing you got to do to find one is start advertising for one put it out there in the world put it on your online profiles if you're online someplace where you can be that explicit and just say this is a fantasy of yours to be dominated by someone who is fucking himself with your dick using your dick taking pleasure from your dick rather than you taking pleasure with your dick that that is something that turns you on and something you want to explore and you know those guys are out there because i told you they are and if you put that out there you're likelier to find one. I bet we'll hear from a couple after your call plays here on the Lovecast. Hey, Dan. Uh, you've given a lot of voice to people who are extremely critical of uh, Donald Trump, uh, the president-elect, whether it's justified or unjustified. You know, I'm hoping you're going to give a little voice here to uh, somebody who may be on the other side. Honestly, I think people are just up in arms about this uh, to an extreme degree that's unnecessary. Um, if you look at people on the right after Obama was elected, they were doing the same thing back in 2008 acting like it was the end of the world, uh, he's going to destroy America, going to push the liberal agenda and take all our guns, nah. and none of that happened, okay? 
similarly, whether you may consider, <clears throat> excuse me, Donald Trump to be a little more rash than Obama, that's understandable. Regardless, he's already been seen to soften his stance on a number of issues. He's not going to indict Hillary Clinton. Doesn't even look like he may build the wall. Um, and there could be some good things that come from his presidency. Um, you know, he has he can make really good ties with Russia, which would help with terrorism. Nobody wants to see another 9-11. And I think under Hillary, you would have a lot more um, vitriol between us and Russia. So, I mean, there are a lot of good, good uh, aspects to it as well. He's a good, regardless of what people say about bankruptcy and stuff like that, he is a good businessman, um, and I think he could make some good deals. He has some good ideas about trade, and uh, I think we need to wait and see. So rather than everyone move to Canada and run out in the streets and make a muck out of it and especially say, oh, he's not my president, which is the most disgusting thing I, I could ever think of someone saying because it's also hypocritical. People on the other side were saying that about Obama, and then left-wing people were saying, oh, that's terrible. You have to support the the candidate. How could you do that? But then meanwhile, you look at these protests and they're doing the very same thing, which is hilarious to me. Why don't we wait, give the guy a chance. Now that he got elected, he actually has to prove and he has to do what he said he was going to do. Now we have to actually hold him accountable and see what he does. And why don't we do that rather than just jump to conclusions? Joining me to help field that question, Kurt Eichenwald, senior writer at Newsweek and the author of many giant scoops in the run-up to the election. Hey, Kurt, how you doing? Fine. How you doing, Dan? Good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for all the work sure. that you were doing uh, during campaign season and all the important stories that you brought to light. Thanks. Any other election year, your reporting would have brought him down, brought down that candidate, but not this time. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, not enough people were paying attention. They were so caught up in uh, emails and the like. And, that uh, And fake news as opposed to the real news at Newsweek. It was frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was frustrating. And I think we're only going to get more and more frustrated as time goes on. So let's tackle this question. Are liberals jumping to conclusions? Should we give Trump a chance? Well, I, I think it, it kind of undermines people's credibility if they attack, you know, nothing's happened yet. Um, I think Trump is, is going to uh, give people a lot of reason to criticize. I think we already have uh, a big one um, with the votes on Obamacare that that have started coming, you know, to dismantle it. Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, now you have the uh, uh, you know business reporting uh, groups like CNBC coming out and say, well, there goes three million jobs in the healthcare industry. I mean, you know, the biggest problem is that so many Republicans don't understand policy anymore. And so I think really, if people want to criticize Trump, criticize the GOP, what they need to do is, you know, bone up on policy, you know, try to understand themselves, what is it that's happening here? And not just, you know, wave placards uh, before anything has actually happened. But haven't some things already happened? His cabinet choices, the people he's appointing, bringing Bannon uh, from Breitbart into the White House. Those are things that have happened. Those are very much open to, to criticism. You know, one of the things, one of the things with the, uh, with the uh, cabinet is that there are some people who, 
you know, I look at it and go, well, you know, yeah, this is a Republican choice and that's not a bad choice. And there are other ones I look at and say, you know, holy God, how did they get that guy out of the haunted house? Some of the uh, uh, worst, in fact, I mean, his national security advisor is a nightmare, but that doesn't get congressional approval. And that's that is something people should be focusing on. His CIA director is pretty good. Hmm. Um, his, you know, it, it, and it, you, you really have to look at it point by point. I think Sessions is dreadful. Um, and so, and so people, you know, people have to understand, you know, for, for eight years, the Republicans played this game of, you know, if Obama said it, it's wrong. I, I used to joke that someday, uh, Obama should come out and praise breathing, and then the entire <laughs> Republican Party would die in four minutes. You know, I used to. Say, I've I've said that we should rename oxygen Obamagen and watch them all suffocate. <laughs> Just like they can't, they don't want their goddamn Obamacare. They want the ACA. They want that. They want right, Kentucky exactly. Connect. They want that. They don't want Obamacare. So you know, we just like the Obama executive order from Obama. It's Obamagen now. Suck on that. I mean, I just saw somebody on uh, Facebook who today, after they, you know, voted down so much of uh, the ACA, who suddenly, who was celebrating, yay, Obamacare is done, and then someone told him it's the ACA, and he finds out, well, the thing that's keeping him alive is gone. And so, you know, and he now he's freaking out, and of course everybody's telling him, you know, Drop dead. Who cares? You're too <laughs> stupid to live. What I hear you saying is we should freak out about some things, but not freak out about others. Because I'm freaked out about the whole fucking thing. What I'm saying is that people need to be smart. And if you just say, you know, everything Trump is bad about Trump is bad. Every policy is bad. Every idea is bad. Um, you know, it, it'll be like it'll be like Obama derangement syndrome. It loses all credibility. But just because, um, but Obama, and, Obama, everything Obama did wasn't bad. And I haven't seen a single good thing. You know, you said the CIA director, not a bad choice. Okay, I, I didn't pay enough attention to the CIA director. All I've seen is everyone that he's picked and appointed is a rabid, rabid anti-LGBT not or is the enemy of whatever he's appointing that person to run like Betsy yeah, DeVos. Those are kind of funny. As the education secretary, when she is the enemy of public education and wants to destroy it. You know, the, the, the head of the EPA, that's a valid thing to protest. The, you know, secretary of education, absolutely. But, you know, are you going to try? Somebody was getting mad at me yesterday for saying Elaine Chow was a fine selection for secretary of transportation. And the response was almost you know, to sum it up, but she's a Republican. It's like, yes, they're going to be Republicans in a Republican administration. There's nothing you can do about that. So you have to pick your battles, decide what the battles are. And yes, wait until something happens. And there's a lot that's happening fast. If people, the day after they start dismantling Obamacare, are the ACA. Let's start calling it uh, something so so any Republicans listening in will go, oh, wait, that, that's what I get. Is the ACA is starting to be dismantled. If people are out there screaming, you know, Trump's a fascist, they're really not accomplishing anything. So in, in a way, I really agree with your caller and disagree a little bit. One is, yeah, don't just don't just jump down Trump's throat. But 
Number two, if, if, when there are things that you oppose, and there's going to be a lot of them, go after them hard and go after them with facts and go after them with policy. You know, Democrats have to be smarter than Republicans if they want to deal with the next four years. Not a high bar. Right? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. And, you know, because Republicans simply do not understand a lot about policy anymore. They used to. But, you know, ever since the infiltration of uh, Sarah Palin followed by the tea, followed by the Tea Party, uh, ignorance has become a virtue. Hey, wait, no, I would and date so, that. I would date that to Reagan and hear from the government. You know, the, the scariest word in the English language. I'm here from the government. Uh, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. That, that this like nihilistic project that the Republican Party launched four decades ago to prove that government is terrible by monkey wrenching government at every level. That's just their policies. I'm talking about like abject stupidity. And you know, if they're accomplishing what they want to accomplish. You know, regardless of your of whether you think it's a good idea or not, you can't say they're stupid. You know, Sarah Palin and all of the knuckle draggers who followed her are stupid. They are frighteningly stupid. People who people who re- rely on the ACA to live and voted for Donald Trump on the assumption that he wouldn't kill or gut the ACA are stupid. Yeah. Are stupid, and you know, I have more compassion for them than a lot of people, <laughs> because it's like you shouldn't have to to stand there and say my Republican representative is lying to me. You shouldn't, you know, as you're watching these these you know political campaign commercials. I remember one in the in the 2012 election where you know it was talking about Obamacare and it showed this haunted road and scary houses and lightning bolts and it was just like oh my god and it was all a lie and and lying has become almost second nature to the Republican party in terms of how its leadership deals with its voters and so i i actually have a lot of compassion for the voters who the Republican voters who've been duped, who didn't know they're being lied to, who didn't know Fox lies, who didn't know that Rush Limbaugh lied. That's where you and I part ways, because right now I'm, uh, you know, you have a lot of these Republican voters who supported Trump because they had this burning desire to see people who are immigrants, documented or not, people of color, queers, women, urbanites. They, they want to see these people. They want to see all of us get our teeth kicked down our throats. And what's going to happen is they're going to get their teeth kicked down theirs. And it's hard for me when somebody tried to punch me in the face and they punch themselves in the face to feel bad for them. I in no way have feel bad for for the racists and haters and the rest. You know, this, not all Trump voters were those people. Uh, all those people were Trump voters. But, <laughs> <laughs> but. Okay, so your recommendation, having looked into the study that reported it out, is we should freak out about what requires freaking out and perhaps take things even from Donald Trump, this authoritarian dirtbag, on a case-by-case basis, incident by incident, appointment by appointment, policy by policy, and fight them on the specifics instead of just raging generally against the man. General rage, I can't think of any instance where it's ever worked. You know, the civil rights movement worked, but it worked because it it focused on a goal. It focused on policy. It focused on this is what we want to achieve. 
and just sort of standing out and, you know, yelling about whatever, um, you know, if there's not, if there's not a focus, if there's not a, a goal in people's heads other than I want to express my hatred of Donald Trump, um, then nothing's going to be accomplished. If on the other hand, uh, people say, you know, uh, he's going after after protections for for minority groups. He's he's going after people's insurance. He's going after the environment. On each of those issues, you know, the 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 opponents have to be thinking, okay, what's the response? What's what is it we want to achieve? What are we fighting for? How do we explain to people, you know, who don't understand? that we're actually fighting for them. And, you know, and, and it's, I guess my, my bottom line is be smart about opposition because it's just generalized opposition accomplishes nothing. Does it accomplish nothing? Because you saw when Obama was elected, Mitch McConnell and on down, the entire Republican elite establishment, every Republican member of Congress, the leadership said – we're going to obstruct everything. We're going to say no to everything. We're going to try to make him a one-term president. And they were rewarded for that. They won both houses of Congress and now the White House. Well, except they failed with Obama. He, he was a two-term president. And Obama actually accomplished a lot. I mean, certainly, you know, in, in any – he faced some of the most disgusting – opposition that has ever been directed at any president. And, you know, I, I have no doubt that it was because of racism. And so the Republicans are going to pay a price for this. The Republicans just kept going dumber and dumber and dumber to keep those people angry. And now, you know, they own it. They're going to have to stand back and say, yes, we're taking apart Obamacare. And Every one of them, I promise you, every one of those people on Capitol Hill knows right now that they're doing this and they have no idea how to avoid the chaos that's going to follow. Will you, will you stick around for one more question that's in the pile that's super annoying and I want to hear what you have to say about it? <laughs> sure. Hi, Dan. Uh, 43-year-old white cis male. I guess that would make me a Bernie bro here in Indianapolis. I love your show, have for a long time. For a while, I actually had to stop listening to it because I was so disappointed in you because you refused to support the stronger candidate against Donald Trump, which was Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump by 18 to 24 points, according to most polls. He annihilated him. There's a variety of reasons. I was concerned because I knew that Hillary was probably going to lose to Trump. A lot of us did. We had the poll numbers. We looked at them. Uh, one of the things that really could have helped Bernie is if you would have spoke up for him in the primaries. He won 22 states. If Elizabeth Warren would have endorsed him. If you had have endorsed him and, and been able to, to mobilize the LBGT plus community that really listens to you, Bernie could have beat Hillary in the primaries. It was very, very close. She needed a superdelegate. But I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for Donald Trump because I really believe that you kept not been worried about blowjobs from Terry. Had you... Uh, you were on Bernie early. You knew about him before anybody else did. I believe that you had the courage to speak up. And uh, Kurt, is Donald Trump my fault? Well, if he is, can you like recommend me for president so that <laughs> I can be president? Am I that powerful? 
<laughs> Apparently, you know, this call is the, some of the ridiculous stuff that has been going on. I mean, it's the argument of, well, if, if you know, I am brilliant, therefore, obviously, if people disagreed with me, it was because they were stupid. And if other people had directed the stupid people, uh, you know, they'd have agreed with me. The arrogance of this guy is off the charts. The ignorance by saying, oh, let's compare polls in June, uh, and it shows that Bernie would have won. Bernie Sanders was never subjected to a real campaign. Hillary Clinton had to deal with him with kid gloves because he had so many supporters who, I'm sorry, were crybabies. And they proved themselves to be crybabies. And the ones who stayed home or protest voted, no, they gave us Donald Trump, not you. And you look at the numbers, it, you can show they gave us Donald Trump. And so, you know, one of the things that I hope the Democrats get out of this is finally begin to understand that their vote is not a gift they give a candidate. It is not something the candidate needs to earn. What it is, is your decision. Who do I think is the better person to lead this nation? Bernie is not a choice. So who between Clinton and Trump? You know, the 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 third party people aren't going to win. My write-in isn't going to win. And anybody who voted third party, anybody who voted protest, who now complains about Donald Trump, you know, to be blunt, you shut the hell up because they're the ones who got us here. The ones who could not accept that when your guy loses, he's not in the race anymore. Kurt Eichenwald, senior writer for Newsweek. Thank you for jumping on the phone. Hey, I'm going to be on the 20th of January stoned out of my mind, listening to musicals and maybe sucking a dick or two. What are you going to be doing on inauguration day to stay sane? (laughs) None of those. (laughs) (laughs) We all grieve in our own way. (laughs) Probably just having it, going out to dinner and having a nice evening with friends. (laughs) Because I'm certainly not going to be not going to be watching the inauguration. I don't watch inaugurations to begin with, but this is, you know, just it's it's just going to be too strange a day. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 31-year-old married gentleman from the East Coast, and I have a slight problem. I, uh, I'm, I, I love my wife dearly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to live without her. But uh, through every relationship that I've been in, I've always had like this incredible like lust for other women. And um, I don't like masturbate inside my wife when we're making love or anything. I'm up there, present. But uh, I just don't know how to like shake the feeling of like other women that I see, and like I, I, I like I find myself like thinking about like strange women like that I see at the grocery store or at the bank or something, you know. And I can't ever quite figure out how to shake it, and it's always been a problem that I've had. And uh, I've never like cheated on any, any girlfriends or anything like that. And I certainly haven't cheated on my wife, and I don't plan on in the future. And I'm very um, proactive in the in the bedroom but i just i i don't i like i feel bad about it sometimes you know and it makes me feel like a like a shitty person like a like a shit bag of uh, sometimes so i was hoping you could like give me some advice maybe try to tell me how i can like 
get rid of these like this this like lust that I have for for like other individuals and it's, I don't even know what it is it's like the idea of, of just being as freaky as I possibly can or something like that I don't know uh, help me out man you could get yourself chemically castrated there are pills you can take daily that will chemically castrate you that will destroy your libido and your ability to obtain and maintain an erection if you don't think you're the kind of person who can hew religiously to a daily drug regimen if you're not going to remember to take your chemical castration pills there's actual castration you could get your balls cut off you could have them replaced with some little silicone testicular implant so nobody in the gym would see your empty sack and think where did his balls go that might work for you too or you could get the fuck over it you there's no problem here there's nothing wrong with you you are healthy Love and commitment and a monogamous commitment and marriage, that does not mean and has never meant that you don't want to fuck other people. It does not mean and has never meant that you are doing something wrong. If you notice other people that if you were single, you might like to fuck. It doesn't mean you're not going to fantasize about other people. It doesn't mean really that also you aren't occasionally going to masturbate inside your long-term partner. I think it, masturbating inside your long-term partner, which is to have sex with somebody while you're thinking about somebody else you'd rather be having sex with or something else you'd rather be doing, perhaps with the partner with or with somebody else, is a problem if you do that every single time. It's a problem if the person that you are with gets the impression every time you fuck that they're being jacked off inside of and not really experiencing intimacy with you. They're not really present. Then it's a problem. But every once in a while, not a fucking problem. And something that people in long, long, long-term relationships not only can't avoid but shouldn't avoid doing and that they should know that they're doing and probably their partner's doing every once in a while too. There will come a time, if it has not yet already come, where your wife arches her back and closes her eyes and you're Ryan Gosling. If that hasn't already happened, it will happen after your wife sees La La Land. I'm sorry to say, my friend, that you have succumbed to the sex negativity and the pathologizing of desire in our culture so thoroughly that you think you're broken when actually you are sterling. You are golden. I'm going to go through all the medals. Golden example, platinum plated example of the best possible outcome. You are a straight man. You've made a monogamous commitment. You are in love with your wife. When you have sex with your wife, you are fully present. You are making love to her. You are able to sustain that monogamous commitment and hew to it, even though you see everywhere you go lots of other women that you are attracted to, and you appreciate them for their beauty, and they fill you with lust at times, but you don't act on it because you take seriously the monogamous commitment that you have made to your wife gold star for you. You are doing everything right. There is nothing wrong with you. You are not broken. You are the opposite of broken. You are managing to finesse the thing that destroys so many other relationships. These contradictions that true love means one person forever, but also your reptile brain, your hardwired desire for variety and newness means you're going to see other people that you would, if you were single, want to fuck. But because you're not single, you're not going to fuck. And you were able to live with that tension. You were able to stick the fucking mount and dismount of that. Give yourself some goddamn credit. You're one of the good ones. Everybody out there is walking around clocking people all day long. That if they were single, 
they would like to fuck. And single people who clock people all the long they would like to fuck know that they maybe could if the planets all aligned correctly. There's nothing wrong with you. You are a high-functioning, straight guy capable of honoring a monogamous commitment while still desiring others. And you know what? Those are the only kinds of straight guys who can honor monogamous commitments. We all want to fuck other people. Some of us have relationships in which, under certain circumstances, we are allowed to fuck other people. But many, if not perhaps the plurality of us, don't. We're not allowed to fuck other people. We're still going to want to fuck other people. You just, you've been sold this lie. I talk about this lie all the time. You've been sold a lie that true love means monogamy and no desire for others. When in reality, true love in action means if a monogamous commitment is important to you, you make that monogamous commitment, you are still going to want to fuck other people. That paradoxically is what makes a successfully executed monogamous commitment more valuable. If it was easy not to fuck other people, if that wasn't a struggle, if that didn't require some effort and focus, everybody would do it. It would have no meaning. But you do it and it's a struggle. Therefore, it involves some sacrifice. It's a temple that you've built to your wife and your beautiful, beautiful monogamous love. Enjoy. Hey, Dan. My name is Carrie, straight girl calling from the East Coast in response to episode 533 with a woman who has become uncomfortable with the word pussy. Uh, I would like to suggest maybe thinking about using the word muff. Muff is pretty and sexy, I think, and um, a nice term for that area. Uh, I would like to suggest the term minge. Minge. Froppy, sopping, minge. You should never call a vagina a vajayjay. It's so childish. It's terrible. Not sexy. No. Call it a yoni. Her power comes from. What's wrong with lady parts? I always like that one. I would love to throw snatch into the ring. My boyfriend and I refer to my snug little snatch, and it can be playful. It can be sexy. No matter what, it's always a turn on. How about Quim? It's Chaucer. I always preferred coochie. How about kitty? In Cuba, the word papaya is slang for vagina. Fanny. Cunny. Hoo-ha. Vag. Tinkle Fanny. Maybe she could just pick a name like Carla. Unfortunately, I know that the German equivalent for pussy is Mutterscheibe, which means mother slit, or even more horrifying, Mutti-Scheibe, which means mummy slit. Uh, be glad you have cunt. I'm not going to suggest a new word for her to use in place of pussy, but I will encourage her to feel empowered to take the word back. That is our word. That is not his word. Do not let him take it from you. He's waging war against our reproductive freedom, and he's not allowed to take the word pussy from us on top of it. Donate to Planned Parenthood. Take your word back. Let it get you wetter than ever. Fuck Donald Trump. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow Mike Pesca on Twitter at Pesc-A-Me. That's P-E-S-C-A-M-I. Follow Kurt Eichenwald on Twitter at Kurt Eichenwald. And follow the Indivisible Guide team on Twitter at Indivisible Team. Read Savage Love, my sex advice column, every week in the Minneapolis City Pages and other newspapers all across the country. And go to humpfilmfest.com for information about my amateur porn film festival now touring the country. The Savage Love cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Love cast. Thanks for downloading.